We're going to go back to Revelation chapter 20 this week. Revelation chapter 20. Brandon and I were talking about what's left in Revelation this week. 20, 21, 22, just three chapters, so we should be done by 2030. I'm just kidding. (laughs) We'll be done when the Lord wants us to be done. But today we're going to look at chapter 20 again. Last week we started with the first three verses. We saw the binding of Satan, and today we're looking at the resurrection in the, just before the millennial kingdom begins. <clears throat> so all of what we're reading here in the first part of chapter 20 is in context of Christ's millennial kingdom when he comes to earth. Chapter 19 shows us his second coming. Chapter 20 is what happens after he comes back to earth. And so we're going to continue reading there. So verse 4 starts with the vision that John is seeing here. And in verse 4 it says this, I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, And judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection." Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now today, I want to take just a minute to look at the resurrection part of this. We may get into the reigning of the saints, but I want to look specifically at the resurrection from these verses. So as we begin, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at this a little bit more in depth. Lord, thank you again for your word. We thank you for this book of Revelation. And Lord, the name tells us that you have revealed things in it to us that were not revealed beforehand. And so, Lord, as we study this section and this passage, I pray that you would just give us clarity of thought, give us understanding. I pray that your spirit would do his work in us to reveal this truth to us so that we might know how to respond to it, how to take it forth, and to share it with others. And so, Lord, I ask for your spirit now to fill me, give me strength, give me power, give me wisdom, and may your words be spoken in truth today so that we are challenged from you and by the power of your word. And may you be glorified in this time. We give ourselves and this time to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we are looking at what's called the first resurrection here. And there's two references to it in verses 5 and 6. Now, I know it starts in verse 4 by talking about the thrones and they that sat on them. We're going to look at those people who are sitting on these thrones, who's reigning actually with Christ in the millennial kingdom. But we have to figure out and find from Scripture who actually is brought into the kingdom and how they're brought into the kingdom in order to figure out who's actually going to be sitting on these thrones. And that's why this message or this uh, subject of the resurrection, what Christ calls the first resurrection, is important to us, okay? So we're going to look at the resurrection of the saints in order to set the stage for who will be reigning with Christ when he sets up his kingdom. Now, we have to define the word resurrection first, okay? Many people have kind of a vague idea, and it's kind of somewhat correct that we're going to come back from the dead, but there's more to it 
than just that. And that's why one of the reasons why we read 1 Corinthians 15 this morning in our responsive reading, because Paul takes that whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe for the Corinthian Christians and for us what this resurrection actually is and what it means to us. So in the context of Revelation 20, we understand this. It is a dead person's body being raised from the grave physically and his soul being restored to that body, which is not the same as what he had on earth, but is a little bit different, okay? The difference is that body that those who will receive the glorified body as believers, that body will be glorified. It will be perfected, okay? There will be no marks of sin in it. There will be no pain. There will be no more death. So that glorified body that we receive, that our soul is restored to at the resurrection, okay, that's what we're talking about. It's not just coming back from the dead. Now, I remember uh, hearing as a boy, uh, probably eight or ten years of age, and, and an evangelist came in and he preached on this resurrection, and I thought, well, that's going to be kind of cool you know, and, and as a kid, you start to imagine, okay, what about all those people who died and their bodies have decomposed? You know, are all those molecules going to be gathered back together and the dirt's going to come out of the ground and join and, you know, and you start thinking that way. And, and I, honestly, I don't know. Okay, God says that we've been made from dust and to dust we shall return. We know that part of it. When you die, your body decomposes. But the body that God is going to give us as we are resurrected, as we are glorified, I don't know. It will be a physical body. We know that. But we don't know whether it's going to be the same body. Obviously, it's going to have different characteristics. But it will be a bodily resurrection. We know that. So we need to understand that part of it first. And that's what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me just read four verses, um, verses 50 through 54. This is a later part of the chapter that we read this morning. And Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. So just by that statement, we know that this body that we inhabit right now cannot go to heaven. This is flesh and blood. This is corruptible. It can't go to an incorrupt heaven. And so we'll receive an incorrupt body. He goes on in verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. That's a fundamental change in our body. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this incorruptible, or this when, when this corruptible shall I put on incorruption, and this mortal shall I put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So Paul makes it very clear here. We're going to receive a physical body, but it's one that will never die. Now, in order to understand that, we need to understand that God will will provide a body, create one or whatever. He will provide a body, a glorified, incorruptible body, where our soul will be rejoined to that body. Our soul doesn't change. Our soul is our soul. If we are saved, it is our soul that will go to heaven. Now, in the, in the, in the interim, we're going to explain the, the long-term uh, aspects of that in the long term. But in the interim, our soul is with Jesus Christ. Paul said that. To be absent from the body 
Our soul leaves our body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So our soul is with Jesus Christ, but we have not been bodily resurrected yet. That will happen at the rapture for the church. Okay, but it's a physical body that we will receive that will be rejoined with our soul. Our life is found in our soul. The person that you are is not this, okay? This is just a shell. It's just the thing that you live in. And that's why it's not going to go to heaven. This is temporary. Um, God gave us a great example of that in the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was the tent that Israel worshipped in, and they moved it from place to place as they went through the wilderness. It was a temporary place of worship. And God refers to our bodies as tabernacles or as temples. The temple was not permanent either. Okay, The temple, we know, has been destroyed at least twice. It will be rebuilt and probably destroyed again after that. But God gives us this picture that we are tabernacles. This body is just a tabernacle. It is our soul where our life is found. And so our soul is what is joined with Christ. So when the soul leaves the body, there is no more life in the body, and it goes back to the dirt. The body goes back to the dirt from which it's formed. So I want you to understand, first, physical death. What does it mean to die? The physical death, then, is the separation of the soul from the body. You're taking the life out of the body. Now, we know that. The Bible tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that, we see, is the physical definition of death, separation of the soul from the body. The soul does not go away. The soul does not cease to exist. The soul is a permanent thing. God has created it. That is what he breathed into Adam when he breathed into the body that he had made And man became a living soul, Genesis tells us. Okay, So that's where the substance of our life is found. We have to understand that first. So physical death is the first death that all men must go through. Hebrews chapter 9, 27 tells us, It's appointed unto man once to die. We all will die. This body will die, obviously, unless the Lord comes back and we're raptured up to heaven. And after this, the judgment, Hebrews says. But then here... I'm sorry, in verse 14 in Hebrews 6, it says the second death. And it refers to the eternal and final separation of an unbeliever's soul from God as he's cast into the lake of fire. We're going to see that at the end of chapter 20 in Revelation, that second death. And and John references it. But this term resurrection in Revelation 20 will apply not to just believers, but it applies to unbelievers as well. It is not just believers who will be resurrected, and I'm going to explain that. But this is what this passage is talking about, is this resurrection, and there's two parts of it. There is the first resurrection, and there is the second resurrection, also referred to as the second death. So there are separate resurrections for the saved and the unsaved, and that's what we read in verses 4 and 5 here. John says, he starts, he says, I saw thrones and they that sat upon them. The judgment was given unto them. I saw the souls of them. There's that souls, okay? The souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, Christ is coming physically back to earth to have a physical kingdom. And so these believers, their souls, will be resurrected with a new body as they sit and reign with Christ on the earth, okay? 
And then verse 5 says, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. It's talking about all of those unbelievers who will be resurrected because it says the rest of the dead, they're still dead, they lived not again until the thousand years were finished. So there's a resurrection for unsaved people coming as well. That will be at the end of the millennial kingdom. And that's what it says in verse 5. Now, the phrase that John uses here when he says this is the first resurrection, he's talking about those people who are alive for the millennial kingdom, okay? That's the first resurrection that we're going to focus on today, because Jesus talked about this when he said in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, that's the first resurrection, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation, that's the second resurrection or the second death. And so Jesus um, said there's going to be basically two resurrections. He's going to call people, everyone, no one can avoid that, and the, those who are ordained to life will come forth first, then the second will come forth to be damned. Now, some people take uh, Jesus' words in John 5 and interpret it as a general resurrection. They basically say, well, Jesus said he's going to call, and then the people, everybody's going to rise up. Some will go to life, some will go to death. Well, that's not actually what the verse teaches, and that's not actually what the Bible teaches. Okay, And we see that very clearly here in Revelation chapter 5. In order to interpret Scripture, by the way, you have to use other Scripture. If it doesn't agree with the rest of the Bible, then it's probably not what you think it's saying. So we're looking at what Jesus said. We look at Revelation chapter 5 and we, or Revelation chapter 20, and we can see that there's two resurrections that Jesus is actually referring to. Now, they will say, well, he said an hour, that Jesus said an hour is coming. So it must be the same event. Well, that hour is a general hour. It doesn't mean a specific moment in time. Remember, Jesus, during his ministry and life, several times said, mine hour is not yet come. What was he referring to? That specific hour of his trial? That specific hour that he was on the cross? Well, the trial lasted for several hours. He was on the cross for at least uh, three hours. So it wasn't one hour that he was talking about. When he said, my hour is not yet coming, he was actually talking about the entire series of events, starting with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, all the way up to his ascension to heaven. It was his death, the series of events that included his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven. That's what he called his hour. So he wasn't saying hour as in a specific hour. He's talking about a time period. And so when he says the hour is coming in, in John 5 that the graves will hear his voice or those who are in the graves will hear his voice, he's talking about a time period. And here we see in Revelation chapter 20, it is at the end times. All right, those who will be raised to life will be called first before the millennial kingdom. Those who will be raised to death, eternal punishment, will be raised after the millennial kingdom. All right, now we're going to focus on the first resurrection because that's what this passage is fo focusing on. In verse 5, at the end of verse John, uh, 5, John says, this is the first resurrection. Now, just before that, he says this, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And I want you to understand that this statement about the first resurrection is in reference to what he said in verse 4. 
about those who would live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. It's not talking about those who are still dead. Okay? So with that in mind, let's continue on, and we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and read again some of what we read this morning in a responsive reading. In verses 20 through 24, Paul describes this first resurrection in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. In chapter 15, I'm going to read the rest of this passage in a minute, but in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul describes the first resurrection, but in doing so, he presents it in several stages. It doesn't all happen at once. And this is uh, important for us to grasp in order for us to get the picture of what we see in Revelation chapter 20. So he starts, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But, verse 23, every man in his own order. That means there's an order to the resurrection. Paul's saying it right here. Christ is the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Now, there again, a general reference to Christ's coming. What is he talking about? The rapture or the millennial kingdom? And the answer is yes. Okay? It's both. It is the entire series of events beginning with the rapture through the millennial kingdom when Christ returns. So Paul says, afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Now, when Paul says that about Christ's kingdom and giving the kingdom to God, he's talking about the earthly kingdom in this world that has been usurped by Satan. And the time frame that Paul gives us in chapter 15 of Corinthians is that Christ will come back and he will raise up believers, but there's an order to it. Christ was the first fruits. He was the example, okay? And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But then there is a series of events that are part of this first resurrection in which different people will be resurrected at different times, all part of the first resurrection, and it all happens before the millennial kingdom begins. This is all believers, okay? So it says Christ was the beginning or the first fruits. He became the first fruits. His resurrection started it all. If Christ did not resurrect from the dead, we would have no hope. Because in resurrecting from the dead, Christ conquered death. And in conquering death, then he gives us hope of eternal life. If Christ hadn't come back from the dead and he was still dead, what hope do we have? Okay, so that's the whole point. Christ had to come back from the dead. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead after three days, we will be raised at the rapture, and those who end up going through the tribulation and die during the tribulation and have died before that in the in, before the church age, they will be raised at the millennial kingdom. Okay, so t- Paul talks about an order, and these this order that Paul uh, refers to as far as men being resurrected, I think, has a pattern. If we go back to the Old Testament, the Old Testament gives us a great number of pictures of things. 
of what God is intending to do in the future or God's plan for mankind as a whole if we just look at the pictures. And he gave us a picture in the law, okay? Now we say, well, we're not held to the law anymore. No, we're, we're not held to the law anymore. But the principles and the pictures that God gave in the law are still valid for us to learn. In the law, God gave Israel a feast called the Feast of the First Fruits. Okay, it was done at harvest time. And you may have heard me reference this before, but this helps us to understand this resurrection. In Revelation, um, it, previously, I think it's in chapter 11, um, we read about the harvest, the angels that proclaimed the harvest of God, and there were two stages of that harvest. That was harvest of judgment. This is the harvest of life, if you will. And in Leviticus chapter 23, it, actually both these passages are in Leviticus, in the law of God, God gives instructions about the time of harvest for Israel. And he says, when you harvest, you're first, before you go and take all of the grain out of the field, the first thing you do is take a sampling, one sheaf. And he instructs them in Leviticus chapter 23. And he says, speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when ye come into the land which I give you and shall reap the harvest therefore, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. Same word that Paul used to describe Jesus Christ. First fruits of the harvest. And, John, and, and God says in the law, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf there before, thereof before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath, and the priest shall wave it. So Israel was required, as they started to harvest, to bring the first sheaf, the, whatever the first harvest was, first part of the harvest. It didn't have to be, you know, a, a huge portion of it. It was just a sampling, but it was brought to the tabernacle. And it was given to the priest, and the priest would take that first fruit and wave it before the Lord. Now that first fruit represented the entire harvest. And in Israel's mind, what they understood that to mean is that in bringing that first fruit to the Lord, we are presenting him the entire harvest because it comes from him in the first place. And so by giving this token of the harvest as an offering, then we are sanctifying that whole harvest to God. All right? So it's a token. The, the, the principle of the tithe is the same thing. A tenth represents the entire thing for the Jews. It's a representative portion. And so in giving the tithe, Israel understood, well, all of our belongings, all of our money, all of our wealth belongs to God. In giving a tenth, we're actually dedicating and consecrating everything we own to the Lord. Now, God knows we have to have money, we have to have food, we have to have things to live on. But it's the attitude that matters, okay? And that's what God is teaching Israel in this first fruits offering, or the feast of the first fruits. So that was the first stage of the harvest, the first fruits brought to the Lord as a representative. And Paul calls Jesus Christ the first fruits. He was that initial offering of the harvest to God, the initial example of the resurrection. And like I said, if he hadn't resurrected, we wouldn't have any hope of eternal life. So that's the first stage where Jesus 
became the first fruits for us. The second stage then was the main harvest. After Israel brought the, the first fruits and offered that wave offering, then they would go and do the regular harvest. But God had instructions for them, even in the main harvest. Okay? And he said in the main harvest that they should not harvest everything. In fact, he gave, made it very clear, and I'll, I'll read from uh, Leviticus chapter 19 in just a minute, that they don't go to the corners and that they don't pick up what they left behind. Okay, and there's a story behind that. There's a reason for that, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the second stage is the main harvest. That's when the bulk of the crop is brought in. Now, when Christ first returns in what we'll call the second stage of the harvest, Christ has already been resurrected. Who are the next people to resurrect? The church in the rapture. Okay, and so we'll call that the main part of the harvest. And Paul describes that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In verses 13 through 17, he says, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So he's not talking about those people who are asleep or soul sleep. Sleep was a reference to those people who had died. So he's talking about dead believers here. And he says, verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep or dead, or precede them, is what he's saying. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So there's the main part of the harvest. The rapture. He takes the church. Now, there's questions that come up, right? Because obviously, Israel was the focus in the Old Testament. Israel was given the law. How could the main harvest for them be the church? Well, here's the interesting thing. What we see in the law points to Christ. Christ came to minister to the Jews specifically. Now, he came to minister to all men, but his ministry was focused on the Jews. And if you read his ministry through the Gospels, you'll see that. His message was primarily for the Jews, his own people. But even in his message, he gives indications and he gives principles and truths that relate to the church. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at the, uh, the pattern of the ancient Jewish wedding and how all of that works together to show us a picture of the series of events that leads to the marriage supper of the Lamb, as we looked at that in Revelation chapter 19. Okay, that was Old Testament, and yet it gave us a clear picture of what the church was going to be doing and how Christ was going to interact and the resurrection of the church and the marriage of the church and the return of the church to the earth in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the church is involved in all of that, even in the Old Testament pictures, and here we have that picture as well. So the question comes up, okay, why would the rapture then not include Old Testament saints, all those saved Jews, right? Abraham, Joseph, all of those people. Wouldn't the rapture include them? How come we don't read about the rapture in the Old Testament? That's a great question. Because the rapture is for the New Testament church. And to put it in context, we have to understand that up until Jesus' ascension and then Pentecost, God was focused on Israel directly intervening in their lives and in their history. 
I'm not saying he abandoned them at that point, but Daniel 9 makes it very clear that there's a break. Okay, there's, Daniel receives a vision, and he says there's 70 weeks of God's intervention with Israel. At 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, and we know what that represents. That's Jesus' death and resurrection. And then there's a gap. And then the 70th week, described in Daniel, talks about the tribulation period. So what happened to all that time between those two major events, the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ, or the tribulation period before the return of Christ? What happens? Well, I've explained before, God essentially pushed the pause button on Israel. Israel's history, the focus on Israel, was removed, and now the focus became the church, the bride of Christ. And so all of the Old Testament prophecy about the kingdom, it does relate to us as the church, but it does not include the rapture because the rapture was for the church only. If a Jew even up to the time of Christ, heard about the rapture, they would have no idea what that was talking about. Because all the prophecy in the Old Testament is about the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. Christ coming back to earth to set up his earthly kingdom. Remember the disciples even argued about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. Christ's return. They had no idea about Christ coming in the clouds and us going up to meet them. That's for the church. Okay, so even though we have these pictures in the Old Testament, it doesn't relate to Israel. So the, this first or second, literally second part of the prophecy, or, I'm sorry, the second part of the harvest of this resurrection is the church at the rapture. Okay, and again, why, why did Christ never really teach about the rapture? You look at his, and people will go to Matthew chapter 24 and 25 and say, oh, look, there's elements of the rapture there. no. In Matthew chapter 24 and 25, if you look very closely and then look at other scripture, Christ is talking about his second coming and his judgment upon the earth and his setting up of his millennial kingdom. There's no talk about people going up. And you go, well, what about the part that says, you know, two will be in the field and one is taken? Two are be lying and one is taken? I'll get to that. So hold on, okay? I'll explain that in a minute. But this main part, or the second part of the harvest, then, is the church. We go up in the rapture before the tribulation, as I've taught before, and we are in heaven during the seven years of the tribulation. Then we return with Christ as the church to the earth as he comes at his second coming. Okay? So, that's the main part of the harvest. Now, in the law, God told Israel, when you do this main part of the harvest, I want you to not take everything. And so what he told them in Leviticus 19 was this, When ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings, or what falls onto the ground, of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean the vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of the vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and the stranger. And in another passage, he actually says, and if you forget a sheath in the field, don't go back and get it. You leave it there for the poor and the stranger. That is their food. These are called the gleanings. That's the third part of the harvest. And it's the poor people, the leftovers, if you will, that would come in after the main harvest and then gather what was left over in the field so that they could have food for themselves. That's the third stage. Now, you think about the bride of Christ, the church, being taken up in the rapture, and then there's going to be people who are saved 
during the tribulation period. They missed the rapture, but they still have salvation. They'll have to go through some of that suffering of the tribulation period. And if they don't survive, which many of them won't, they will be resurrected, but they've missed the rapture. So what happens to them? That's this third part of the, re- of the resurrection. And that's what John, I'm sorry, Revelation 20 is talking about. Those people who have died during the tribulation will be raised again so that they can join Christ at the millennial kingdom. So right as Christ comes back, those tribulation saints will be raised. And that's what this passage is talking about in verse 4. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So they're resurrected here at the beginning of the millennium. Now the question then is, okay, what about the rest of the Old Testament saints? What about all those Israelites? Where do they come in? You have to go back to Daniel. Okay, Daniel gives us some great pictures and teachings about the history and the future of Israel, if we pay attention to it. So in Daniel chapter 12, beginning that chapter, Daniel has this vision, and an angel is telling him these things. And the angel says, at that time, talk about the end times, at that time shall Michael, that's the archangel, stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. Now, let's just look at that phrase. There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. What's that talking about? That's the tribulation. Israel has suffered a lot in their history, but they will not suffer. I'm sorry, they will suffer more in the tribulation than they have at any other time in history because they will be directly persecuted by the hand of the Antichrist for at least three and a half years. We know that. He is going to try to wipe them off the face of the earth, and many of them will be killed. In fact, another passage tells us that only a third of Israel will survive the tribulation. Okay? So when Daniel says, a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time, that's what we're talking about. And then he says this, and at that time thy people shall be delivered. Now we just studied the national deliverance and the national redemption of Israel, the remnant, remember, at Christ's second coming. That's in chapter 19. Okay? And so the angel tells Daniel, at that time, Time of the end times, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book of life, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And there again in Daniel we see two resurrections, some to life, some to death. But this passage is talking about Israel, okay? And I know that because the angel says, talking to Daniel, thy people. Now, there was no church then, and there's no way to equate our modern-day church or the church age with Israel. The church is not Israel. They are two separate entities. And so when the angel tells Daniel, thy people, he's talking about the Jews specifically. In this context, he says, there will be a time when the Jews will be persecuted beyond anything they've ever encountered before. And at that time, God will deliver them. 
the remnant. And at that time, they will be raised, those who have died, some to life and some to condemnation. Now, if they have to go through that tribulation and God is going to deliver them and then they're raised, when does that resurrection happen? After the tribulation at Christ's second coming when he establishes his kingdom. So we have two groups of people in this third stage. We have all the Old Testament saints, and especially the Jews, that we read about in the Old Testament. And we have the tribulation saints. And you say, well, why didn't they go up in the rapture? Because they're not part of the church. That's why the rapture is for the church. The second resurrection starts with Jesus. The second stage is the rapture. The third part is Old Testament saints and tribulation saints. Now, who does that leave? Only people who are alive and unbelievers who are dead, right? Okay? So what we have going into the millennial kingdom of Christ, according to Revelation here, is that we have the church, obviously. They've already been raptured. But then at the millennial kingdom, at the beginning, we have tribulation saints being resurrected, and we have all the Old Testament saints being resurrected. That's all the saints. The church, Old Testament, and tribulation. There's nobody left that's saved. So all of them, all the dead believers who have lived from the beginning of creation all the way up until Christ's second coming will be resurrected at that time and joined together. Church first at the rapture, then the rest at the end of the the tribulation period. Okay? Now, verse 5 in Revelation 20 uses this phrase, the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. We know what's going to happen to dead believers. They will be resurrected in the first resurrection. That's what verse 5 tells us. What happens then with all of the dead unbelievers? I mean, lots of unbelievers have died through the course of history. What's going to happen with them? They're not resurrected yet. Okay? We see the second phase of that, and you have to jump down in Revelation 20 down to verse 11. And I'm going to get to this in the coming weeks, but very quickly, let me just read this. Verse 11 says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. That's Jesus Christ. Verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Okay, now it says second death, but John says in verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great. They were raised up. There's the second resurrection. Okay? That will come at the end of the millennial kingdom. We'll understand that as we continue to study chapter 20 in Revelation. Okay, But that's the short version. They're going to stay dead. All unbelievers will stay dead through the millennial kingdom. So that begs the question then, when we get to the beginning of the millennial kingdom, there are still people on earth who have survived the tribulation that are unbelievers. The armies have been destroyed, but the people haven't. And so what happens to those unbelievers who are still alive, going into the kingdom. Well, they don't go into the kingdom, 
okay? And that's where you have to go to Matthew's, to, to uh, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 and 25, okay? So look at Matthew 24 and 25 very quickly. Going to verse, uh, Matthew 24 first, verse 36, and I'm going to read a lengthy passage because I want you to understand this. It says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. That day and hour, again, is the entire series of events that will begin what we call the end time, starting with the rapture, okay? But he says in verse 37 in chapter 24, but as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And here's the passage that everybody confuses. Then two shall be in the field, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. What is that talking about? If that's not the rapture, what is it? Well, if you look at the original Greek, which this was originally recorded in, The word taken means taken in judgment, not taken to life. It means taken in judgment. And we're talking about when the Lord comes to earth, that's the second coming. So when Jesus comes back to earth, he's explaining here, those people who are alive will be instantly judged, basically, at that moment for the sake of going into the kingdom, and those people who are unbelievers will be taken off the earth in judgment. They will be killed at that moment. Okay? So going into the millennial kingdom, there will be no unbelievers, only believers. Those who survived the tribulation and all of those who have been resurrected in the first resurrection. But anybody who's an unbeliever at the beginning of the kingdom will be dead, gone from the earth, even those who survived the tribulation. And Jesus teaches that in Matthew chapter 24. If you go to Matthew chapter 25, in verses 31 to 46, he talks about the sheep and goats judgment. You've probably heard of this. And he says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, then all the holy angels with him, he shall sit on the throne of his glory. That's the millennial kingdom. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. That's people that are still alive on the earth. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them in his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom, millennial kingdom, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer say, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? When saw we thee a sick person, or in prison and come to thee? And the king, when is Jesus going to be the king on earth? Millennial kingdom. And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. What Jesus is talking about here is that those who believe in him during the tribulation will exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus Christ, in caring for other people 
during the worst persecution on earth, especially the Jews. Now, remember in the Holocaust, there were, you can read the stories of people who tried to help the Jews. They hid them. They helped them escape. Okay, and they're lifted up as heroes. And frankly, that's genuinely what Jesus is talking about here. Because believers in Jesus Christ will realize that the Jews are his chosen people. And so as believers in the Messiah, they will do everything they can to help God's people, the chosen people of Israel. Remember, God's hand and intervention will be directly with Israel again in the tribulation. He will use the judgment to purge them. He will uh, uh, save a remnant of them at the end, one-third. But he will use these believers who still survive the tribulation to help in that event. And so Jesus says there's sheep and there's goats. The sheep are true believers, and it shows in how they live. Now he goes on in verse 41, he says, Then shall he say unto those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was unhungered, you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in. Naked, you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, you visited me not. Then shall they answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, when saw we thee and hungered or thirst, a stranger, naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? And then he shall answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not, to the least of these, ye did it not to me. And what does the next verse say? These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. Now, I remember as a kid, I was taught, you know, all of that talks about the rapture and Christian life and the church. No, this teaching is about the millennial kingdom. It applies to us in that the principles still are in effect. If we don't care for others in exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, then there's no way we can call ourselves a believer. And we're going to stand before Christ someday and say, oh, but Lord, I did all these things. And Jesus is going to say, no, you didn't. Depart from me. I never knew you. And the same event is going to happen again at the beginning of the millennial kingdom after the church has been raptured. And those people who are true believers, Jesus is going to say, enter thou into the kingdom that I prepared for you. And the rest of them, at the beginning of the kingdom, are going to be cast into eternal death. So they're taken off the earth. So going into the millennial kingdom, the first resurrection is the series of resurrections that brings all dead believers through all history back to life in a glorified, perfect body to be with Christ as he begins his kingdom on earth. The only people who will be alive on earth as human beings, are those believers right here, the sheep, the true sheep, that Christ says, enter into my kingdom. Everyone else will be gone. And so at this point, as Christ begins the millennial kingdom, all unbelievers are dead in what we'll call hell or Hades, the holding place of the dead. Not eternal judgment, that's the lake of fire, which we're going to see again, the end of chapter uh, 20. So now we know who's alive as the kingdom begins. All believers through all time. They've been resurrected. Only believers. And that's who's going to reign. Now, the reign of the saints, I'm going to have to put off till next week because you must lunch if I can't continue that now. 
So come back next week, and then we'll look at the reign of the saints with Jesus Christ on earth. Okay? And it all has to do with this resurrection. Let's stop there. We'll have a word of prayer as we close our service. Lord, thank you again for your love. Thank you that you've given us this truth that we can study, that we can see your plan for the future, Lord, and give us hope that you will accomplish that which you have promised. Lord, we look forward to the day when Jesus returns as his church and as his bride, Lord, to take us from this earth so that we can be with him in person and looking forward to that kingdom that he will come back on earth to establish. But Lord, help us to be faithful in the meantime. I pray that you would give us understanding, give us the motivation, the inspiration that we need from your spirit to be faithful in serving you, to let your spirit do his work in us so that our lives exhibit that fruit of love, of mercy, of tenderness, of compassion for other people. And Lord, I pray that we would show Jesus as we live day to day. Thank you again for this time that we've had together. We pray for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our service this morning with 290.